This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really want to pray that this Easter Sunday you'll help us to understand the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I say to you the word life, what do you think of? What comes to mind? What pictures do you have when you think of life? When you think of life, sometimes you think of a newborn baby or a, or a beautiful day on the beach, on a holiday, or with family and friends having a good time around dinner. So usually when I think of life, you picture a fragment of life, a snapshot, a fleeting moment of joy. Because I think that for many people, when you think of life, you think about the fleeting moments of joy and happiness in life because most of life around those fleeting moments of joy are really long moments of uh, dullness or boredom or at worst, suffering. But yet, even though life is filled with moments of this joy and yet extended moments of suffering or dullness, when we come to the end of life, everyone wants more life. So I've been by the bedside of many dying people, my grandmother, my grandfather, my mother, my father, mother-in-law, other people, and everyone wants more life. One more month, one more week, maybe one more hour or even one more breath. So today we're going to look through the Gospel of John. And John is quite interesting because John actually is answering the question of who is Jesus What does he come to do and how should we respond to Jesus? But he focuses a lot on the theme of life. Because the word life in the book of John is used 36 times, more than the other Gospels. And this theme of life always has to do with Jesus Christ. And for John, when he expresses life in the Gospel of John, It's not like a moment or a snapshot of life. It's not like the Coca-Cola moment of life, right? Or, you know, you only enjoy life when you're drinking Tiger beer or something like that. But Jesus offers a radically different idea of life and what he is offering. So it's radical both in terms of its quality of life and radical in terms of its quantity of life. So throughout the book of John, we see Jesus speaking at various times about life. So in John chapter 4, which is up here on the slide, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, and again, we're going to be going through this kind of quickly, but you'll get the idea by the end of the sermon. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with two loaves and two small fish, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Again, in verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Again, in John chapter 7, when Jesus entered the temple, the Feast of the Tabernacles, on the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and in a loud voice, he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And again in John chapter 10, after healing the man born blind, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So the life that John speaks about, life that Jesus speaks about in the Gospel of John, is very different from the secular understanding of life, it is a quality and a quantity of life which is beyond our experience. You notice how Jesus uses the words about the fullness of life. People come in through him and they find pasture. They have fullness of life. There's a richness of life. There's an abundance in life. And this life doesn't end with this life because there is a quantitative difference to this life. Because there is an eternal life. Now I remember many years ago, I went to a funeral of someone. And this person was sharing about how the dying person, before they died, really, really wanted, before they died, to drink a particular beverage. They just wanted to drink this beverage before they died. You know, it was just the last wish that they had. And that image really stuck with me, you know, it really struck me about how this person really wanted to drink this particular drink just before they died. Jesus here is not offering a drink before you die. Jesus is, is literally offering you living water which will, within you, well up an overflowing of living water within you. It's not just an attraction of taste and texture, right? The fizz or the bubbles or whatever. The water itself that Jesus offers is living water within you that never ends. Now that's the picture of life that we see that Jesus brings. That's what he's offering. Not the mundane lives that we live today, but a totally different experience of life to eternity. But how do we then receive this life? Well, the receiving of this, this life is not in it of ourselves, but over and over again, Again, in the book of John, it says we only receive this life through Jesus Christ. In faith in Jesus Christ and believing in Jesus Christ. So right at the very beginning, in John chapter 3, it says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Again in John chapter 6 it says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him, shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Now, as we go through the book of John, over and over again, this message of 
life only through Jesus is really forcefully pushed through. In fact, this, this truth is so important that Jesus actually matches it only by its opposite. If you have Jesus, you have life. But without Jesus, there is no life. And I think this is such an important theme because when Jesus says, I am the living bread, in a sense he's saying there is no other bread that brings life. It's not like, you know, you go to the NTUC or the cold storage and, you know, if, if you know, for, for me, I like the gardenia whole meal bread. And if I can't find it, well, I'll, I'll go and get the sunshine one, right? Even though I don't like it so much. Or, you know, you go to the supermarket and for whatever reason, you, you, you like Perrier. If you can't get Perrier, then you get some other Fiji water or something, right? But in Jesus' words, very clearly, there is only living water, the bread of life found in and of himself. So many people have the mistaken idea that religions all lead to the same place. So I remember uh, there's this picture I've come across before where, you know, people see religions as different ways. You know, like everybody has a different religion and they all end up in the same place. Well, I think that that's a very popular idea, maybe a very attractive idea to people. But it is not what Jesus says. It is not what the Bible says and it is not what the Gospel of John says. Jesus says very clearly that the only way to the life everlasting, the fullness of life, is only found in Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says this very, very unacceptable words in our climate today, where he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now this might not be a very popular way of expressing it, but this one verse says it says it all. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. Without Jesus, you will not see life. It is only found in Jesus himself. Now Jesus, in the book of John, doesn't just talk the talk, right? He walks the walk. The interesting thing about um, the book of John is that there are not many miracles. In fact, if you go to the other Gospels, there are many, many miracles. Jesus is doing lots of miracles. But the book of John only focuses on a few. In fact, if you go through the book of John, there are only a few miracles which John you know, brings up to our attention. The way that John expresses these miracles is that there are signs. These miracles are signs. They are pointing to Jesus about something. Now, what is a sign? Okay, well, How do you define a sign? Uh, a sign is something which actually points to something or helps us understand what you're looking at. So, you know, let's say you're lost and you want to find the MRT. You look for the, the sign, right? The MRT sign which points you in the direction and how far it is. I remember when I was living um, in Bukatima, at my dad's place, I, I, I used to really like walking in the botanical gardens. In the botanical gardens, if you go there, you'll find lots of these little signs. Right, more and more now that they've got UNESCO heritage status. But on all the little trees, there'll be little signs like, you know, uh, what this tree is about. Or there are even other signs which I couldn't find on the internet, but you can actually walk and you say, oh, you know, this tree was planted by Prime Minister Nakasone uh, from Japan when he came to visit from Japan in 1975 or, you know, something like that. 
The sign is meant to help you understand what you're looking at. Because you know, for me, as probably for most of you, you look at the tree, it all looks the same. Right? There's just brown bark, green leaves, some smaller, some smaller, some bigger. Who cares, right? They all look the same. But the sign itself tells you what you're looking at. In the same way, the book of John says that the miracles of Jesus are like signs. They're trying to teach us and help us understand what we're looking at when we see Jesus. So let's look at a few of the really, I guess, uh, famous miracles of Jesus that are recorded for us in the book of John. So the first one, okay, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I didn't all get pictures, you know, but this picture is painted by somebody famous and it shows a picture recording for, from us in John chapter five of Jesus healing a man paralyzed after 38 years. Now, without this, without the explanation of the sign, we don't know what Jesus is doing. Is Jesus a miracle doctor? Or is he here just to heal people who've been paralyzed? Is his specialty paralysis? Well, in John chapter 5, it tells us the meaning of this sign, where Jesus himself says, I tell you the truth, Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. You see, the sign of the healing of the paralyzed man was actually pointing to Jesus giving life, having the power of life in himself. In the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with two loaves and five fish, Jesus says that the sign is not towards Jesus ending world hunger. right? But rather, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Again, there was a very famous miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Where Jesus comes, a few days late, Lazarus has died and he raises him from the dead. And again, what does this sign mean? What is the purpose of this miracle? Well, again, if you've gone to any Christian funeral, this is the verse that is always up there. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So here we see that Jesus has in himself the power to give life. It is not just the words of Jesus, but the signs of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, which point to the power of life that is found in Jesus. Now I think that the most and the most significant miracle is Easter Sunday. Now, I'm not just saying that because, you know, I feel like it. But actually in the Bible, in the Gospel of John, it says that the resurrection of Jesus is like the ultimate sign that points to Jesus' life-giving power. Now, I remember when I first became a Christian, I tried to talk to my father about about. Christianity about Jesus Christ. And one of the first things he always said to me was, you know, son, I'm a doctor. And I'm like, 
Okay, what's that got to do with things, right? You mean doctors don't become Christians? And he says, you know, I'm a doctor and that's why I don't believe in the virgin birth. Because, you know, I'm a doctor and I've never seen any virgin give birth. Anyway, many years later, he became a Christian. And I said, hey, Dad, what about the virgin birth? And he said to me, he says, oh, the virgin birth. Virgins can give birth? I said, how? He said, well, you know, now they have IVF treatment, right? Virgins can give birth. Now, I find it amazing because it just kind of shows you that that barrier to faith was always there for him. And it's kind of like stopped him from believing in Jesus. But after he realized the possibility, even though I'm not really convinced of his argument, of virgins giving birth, it was no longer a problem for him and it changed the way he viewed the world. His perspective of the world changed because now he could accept what the Bible is saying and he could accept what Jesus was saying. And I think that for us, it's a bit like that, right? The barrier to eternal life, the barrier of thinking that the possibilities of eternal life are there. It's a bit like if you said to somebody maybe a hundred years ago, oh, man can go to the moon. You'll say, ah, nonsense. How can the man go to the moon? But today we think, well, it's very normal that man goes to the moon, unless you're some conspiracy person who thinks that, you know, it's all made up in Hollywood or something. Oh, you know, you said to someone, you know, you know, people can run 100 meters in less than 10 seconds. If you said that to someone 100 years ago, they said, no, how can anybody run 100 meters in less than 10 seconds? But now everybody in the Olympics finals runs 100 meters in less than 10 seconds. You can't qualify for the finals unless you run 100 meters less than 10 seconds. And I think that's what Jesus does on Easter Sunday, on the very last miracle. Because again and again, he had shown his disciples that he had the power of life. Again and again, he said that he was going to die and rise again from life. But on Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago, nobody expected him to rise from the dead. So in John chapter 10 and John chapter 16, he had said to his disciples that he would lay down his life, but then he would take it up again. He said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then in a little while you will see me again. But the disciples, all of them, never understood what he was saying. They couldn't believe what he was saying because their minds were closed to the possibility of life after death. So Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago, after three days, we read that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb of Jesus. We know from the other Gospels, that Mary was coming here, and as we've seen, not expecting to see the risen Jesus. In fact, she was coming to the tomb to anoint with stuff, like, you know, to anoint the body of Jesus and to keep it from smelling bad because she expected him to be dead. She comes to the tomb. The tomb is empty. What is her conclusion? Somebody has stolen the body. Some rascal, some thief has stolen the body. So she runs to the other disciples, and this is the first scene, I suppose, that John records for us. So look with me in verse 3 to 6. You need to have your Bibles with you, so it's very important. When you, when you come to church, it's very important to bring the Bible, because you, you're listening to God, right? So in verse 3 it says, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Verse 4, Both were running, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, 
as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first and went, also went inside. He saw and believed. So here was the empty tomb. And here was the first believer in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to life. The empty tomb itself is not a definitive proof that Jesus rose from the dead. But he looked in and he saw the strips of linen lying there. And he saw the, the cloth which was used to wrap Jesus' head lying on the bench. And he, he didn't believe that Jesus was stolen by grave robbers. Because usually when grave robbers steal bodies, they don't bother unwrapping the body and leaving all the cloth there. I mean, it's so much simpler if you just take the body with you with the linen as well as the head covering. So remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, what happened? The dead man came out and his hands and feet were wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth was around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. So Jesus' resurrection was altogether very supernatural. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, somehow he rose in a way which meant that the, the, the linen and the headcloth itself remained in the tomb, but Jesus himself walked out. Now, how do we understand it? How do we explain it? We can ask Jesus when we go to heaven and ask him how exactly he did it. Because later on, he does something very supernatural too, because he walks through the closed doors into the midst of the disciples, but yet at the same time, Mary can still hold him. Right? So Jesus has this interesting body which we, we can't quite understand yet. So we see here, first of all, the proof that Jesus rose from the dead. The empty tomb. The strips of linen lying there, the headcloth on the bench. And John, the writer of John's Gospel, believed that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Then we come to the second scene. Mary outside the tomb. We don't know when Mary came back. Obviously, she might have come back after the other disciples left. Or maybe, you know, the other disciples came in and she was lingering outside. And they left without her. But Mary meets the angels and Jesus. And she has really weird conversation. That's a really weird conversation because the angel says to Mary, Why are you crying? Now, the angel obviously knows why she's crying because, you know, angels know many things, right? I don't think she's, the angel is really asking the question, no, can you please tell me why you're distressed, you know, why are you crying? It's not like the psychologist angel, right? Or the trying to counsel her or something. I think in a way, the question, why are you crying, is a rebuke to Mary. It's a rebuke to her unbelief. Because if Jesus has risen from the dead, then why are you crying as if Jesus is still dead or Jesus has been dead and stolen by grave robbers? Next, Mary meets up with Jesus himself, but again, because of her unbelief, cannot recognize Jesus for who he is and thinks that he's the gardener. And again, Jesus asks a very strange question. Verse 15, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? 
And again, I think the question is a rebuke because Jesus knows exactly who she's looking for. But it is an altogether inappropriate looking because Mary is looking for someone who is dead, who has been stolen from the grave. But Jesus has already told her that he would rise from the dead and he's standing in front of her. So here we see that Mary, because of her unbelief, cannot see what's before her. It is only when Jesus speaks to her and says, Mary, that Mary opens not just her eyes, but her understanding of what's happening. And she holds on to Jesus. So the proof is, Jesus is there before Mary. Jesus is physically there in such a way that Mary can hold on to him. And again, I feel sorry for Mary. Mary gets rebuked by Jesus. Stop holding on to me, woman. Right? Because... She has a mission. She has a mission to go out and tell the other disciples what she has seen. So she goes off, tells the other disciples that she has seen Jesus. But again, it seems unlikely that they believe. They're there in verse 19 as we read in the third scene. And they're behind locked doors. We see them fearful. We see them doubtful. We don't see them expecting Jesus. But yet Jesus goes through the locked doors into the midst of their presence. And at that moment, they rejoice and are overjoyed because they realize Jesus has risen from the dead. But there's one disciple missing. And that disciple is Thomas. And I feel sorry for Thomas because ever since that moment, Thomas is always called Doubting Thomas, right? Poor Thomas. One day we will see Thomas in, in heaven and say, Oh, you're the doubting one. I'm sure that if Thomas was with the other disciples that day, he would have believed too. Right? I mean, He would have seen what they saw. He would have believed. Because after all, when Mary told the other disciples, they didn't believe. When the ten disciples told Thomas, he didn't believe. He is no better or worse than the other disciples. So in verse 25, Thomas challenges the other disciples, right? He says, he says onwards, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not, not believe. And Jesus takes, takes him up on the challenge, right? He appears before Thomas and says, hey, look, put your hand here. Put your hand to my side. Put your hand, your finger into my, my palm, right? I mean, I don't think Thomas actually did that in the end. But Jesus himself comes before Thomas and Thomas in verse 28 makes a 180 degree turn. Right From this belief he says, My Lord and my God. Okay, My Lord and my God. This is a very important verse, actually, because, you know, when the Jehovah's Witness come before you and they say Jesus is not actually God, you say, oh, look, John chapter 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. He recognizes Jesus as God. And here we see from what Thomas says, or Jesus says to Thomas, is the message that goes out of 2,000 years ago to 19F Charlton Lane. So if you look up here on the slide, this verse is John and Jesus speaking to you and I today. 
Right? It's sort of speaking out from 2,000 years ago to our context today in Haogang. Because Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, it's totally inappropriate for us to say, I will not believe in Jesus unless Jesus appears before me and shows me his hands and his side, right? Because Jesus is not going to do that anymore. But Jesus says that blessed are we who have not seen, but yet have believed. And the reason is because the signs, again in verse 30, right? Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded here in this book. But these are written. What we have here in our hands is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. And by, by believing, you may have life in His name. See, the reason why we have the Bible before us, the pages of the Bible, the eyewitness accounts, is so that Jesus' words may be fulfilled. That we who have not seen will believe. And by, by believing, we will have life. Eternal life. Life to the full. Pasture. Life to its fullest extent. You see, just as we see Easter Sunday, so we have a perfectly reasonable expectation that by believing in Jesus, we will never die. Now, when is the last time that you nearly died? Can you remember when's the last time that you nearly died? I remember um, I was uh, surfing in a beach in Australia one day, many years ago. I still remember the name of the beach. It was called Wanda Beach. And there was a big, big surf that day, big rip. And I was swimming. So I got taken a bit further out than I expected. And I was a bit t- more tired than I remember. And there was an old man next to me. And then he asked me, he said, are you having trouble? And I said, I was. And he said, oh, then you have to start waving to the shore, right? Wave to the lifeguards. And um, so I started waving like mad to the lifeguards. He started waving at me. And uh, I waved because I had great faith that the lifeguards on the shore would be able to save me. I mean, after all, they have those huge boards. What are they doing there? They have like, you know, flotation devices over their shoulder. And it was a totally reasonable expectation that they would come and save me that day. And my expectation was met. Uh, to my great embarrassment, some young girl came out with a big board to save me, right? So I didn't die that day. But one day, I will die. Probably not surfing. Right, but if illness doesn't get me, old age or some accident will get me. But Jesus here offers us Life beyond death. Eternal life. A totally different quality and quantity of life. And it is totally reasonable to expect that Jesus will give us that life. Because just like that, on that day on that beach where you know you see the people, the big boards and their flotation devices, Jesus has shown us that he will and can give us life. Through the miracles, the signs that he shows, through the promises that he makes, through his own resurrection on Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, we know that Jesus can overcome death. And by believing in him, you will have life. Without Jesus, there is no life. 
In Jesus, there is life. So let's believe in Him, trust in Him, have faith in Him, and be confident because we know that in Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, He showed us the ultimate sign of being able to overcome death and we know that He will give us life everlasting. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that this Easter Sunday, we will remember the words of Jesus in His ministry and His life. We will remember the signs that Jesus did during His life. And especially remember the sign that Jesus gave after He died. His resurrection from death three days after He was crucified. And dear Father, we just pray for ourselves that we will believe in Jesus, have faith in Him, trust in Him, and know that in Jesus Christ, we will come in, have pasture, live life in its fullness, to eat of the bread of life and to drink of the living water, so that streams of water will be flowing in abundance within us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.